got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revelationary times. I'm Emily Yates. And I'm Sarah Baranowskis. We're calling this episode Queering the Age of Aquarius, and our guest is Dr. Serena Chopra, a teacher, writer, dancer, filmmaker, soundscape designer, and visual and performance artist. I think that being a visionary inside of the system necessitates that we have a relationship with our spiritual self and that our spiritual self be given expression, freedom of expression. But before we dive in, if you've been really enjoying what you've been hearing on the podcast and you want to share it with all your friends, we would really, really love it if you did that, as well as give us all of the five-star ratings on all of the services, and even leave us a comment and tell us you love us. We really like love notes. Um, yeah, so basically, we want to uh, keep doing this and keep getting the words of our fabulous guests out to the world, and we thank you for doing that uh, continuously and in advance if you haven't started yet. To start us off, I'm going to give you a little sneak peek of a brand new song off my brand new album called Notes to Self and Others, which technically isn't released until tomorrow. So here you go. You can hear it here first. This song is called Love Yourself. You can love yourself all night long. Keep going all day and you won't go. Cause you're the one who you belong with Go ahead and love yourself all night long You don't need somebody else to give you love Everything you need fits in a huge-sized glove So give yourself a round of well-deserved applause Congratulate yourself on being everything you ever dreamed of Dr. Serena Chopra has a PhD in creative writing from the University of Denver, an MFA from the University of Colorado at Boulder, and was a Kundeman Fellow, a 2011 to 2013 Redline Artist in Residence, a 2016 to 2017 Fulbright Scholar in Bangalore, India, and received a month-long artist residency at Understudy Denver for September 2020. She has two books as well as two films and she is an eight-year company member with an Evolving Doors Dance, was recently a featured artist in Harper's Bazaar, India, as well as in the Denver Westwards 100 Colorado Creatives. She has recent publications in Foglifter, Sync, and Matters of Feminist Practice. Serena is Assistant Professor of Creative Writing at Seattle University, and here she is with us. So how's your uh, apocalypse been going? (laughs) Uh, hmm. It's been strange, but also I think in some ways um, productive or shifting, um, like internally shifting for me. Um, We, I had all these art projects lined up for the year. I had like a a film and, um, a haunted house, a queer haunted house hosting in Denver, which I did end up doing. We just had to like completely revamp the idea to make it pandemic safe. Um, 
so yeah, a lot of letting go as well. I had to like let go of doing the projects that I was like, had been planning to do for like two years. I had asked for like a sabbatical um, this last quarter, um, which I ended up teaching because I couldn't do any of my projects or the bigger one anyways, uh, the film. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, and I just moved to Seattle last September. So the first year of us being here about like, we were able to be here for like five months before we were in quarantine. So we like still only have two friends here and haven't really explored much of what's, of, you know, the city of what the city has to offer. Um, so that's been a challenge, but on the positive side, I really loved spending time at home and in my garden and with my wife and my cat. And, um, you know, I thought I was going to have a really hard time moving from Colorado to Seattle with the lack of sunshine here, but I actually really have grown to have an appreciation for the rain and cloudy weather. And we live right by the shore. And so it's just nice to hear barges and seagulls and rain and wind, um, all that kind of drama um, mm. is so wonderful. I, I'm really enjoying it. Mm -hmm. uh, so apocalypse. Yeah. So apocalypse, <laughs> I'm like still sort of like, don't trust that. I feel like the apocalypse is a slow, slow, slow burn. And this is just one of many early steps. Um, um, yeah. So I think I'm doing all right. <laughs> I, yeah. We, I would, I would definitely agree. It's more of a slow burn than a big explosion or implosion or anything, but as artists and writers and creators, um, I feel like it's, you know, I mean, it's just steeped in metaphor. <laughs> it's very <laughs> revealing, quite literally <laughs> revealing. I think it's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Making has been really strange in these days. You know, it's been a lot of like, um, how do you say, like making against or with more so I think with the obstacle and um, that's, I always think of that as kind of fun and exciting. Um, there's also obviously when the, the obstacle is an actual like real horror that has, you know, more terrifying depths to it. But, um, you know, readjusting how I make and how I process um, and how I move through creative and visionary um, processes has just been really eye-opening. Um, I think my work and my approach has shifted a lot um yeah yeah and like in, in what way do you feel like you've your shift has happened because I've also noticed some large shifts but I'm curious what yours have how yours have manifested that's a good question um I think that for a long time I had been needing to go um, personally in my own work, I had been needing to go more, um, into, how do I say this? Like my spiritual and familial roots. And so, um, 
you know me, Emily, I'm an academic and I um, can love theory. And so I can think, you know, my way through so many cool, like and interesting um, conceptual puzzles. Um, but I think I was really needing to do something different. And so the work I've been making, a lot of it has been coming out of really intense like seances and um, ritual practices um, a lot of listening more than shoving into the world a lot of like taking in and becoming more like receptacle and yeah a lot more writing in the bathtub because <laughs> it's like a possibility um, in the middle of the day now um, <laughs> and yeah so this idea of obstacle has also been like okay, well, I can't be out in the world constantly energized by things I see and things I hear and people doing things. So how can I still stay activated and alert? And how can I still bring new content um, into my life? How can I enrich my narrative? And so what I found is, is this, um, with, with obstacle of not being able to go out and get it, is turning it closer to me. Um, and turning closer to home and turning closer to um, the magic that exists in these little spaces that I don't normally look at um, when I'm really busy in my life. And so giving a more careful attention um, and um, also having to work against the obstacle of anxiety and sharing space, workspace with my wife and um having to be able to like work through that in a really focused way because there's not a lot of escape right there's not a lot of places that we can go that I can go to to um get more fodder for my work so yeah I would say a lot of dialing in a lot of different kinds of tuning um a lot less conceptual heavy thinking work and a lot more heart work and listening work and visionary kind of like think in terms of visionary like trying to see into other realms type of work mm. yeah. yeah that is um that is I think a perfect maybe not perfect the word perfect it's so so weighty but I feel like that's a really appropriate response from that I would expect you to have given that the way that you know I met you in this queer lit class that really opened my eyes to a lot of alternative ways of thinking about you know not only literary theory but life theory and just the idea of, um, you know, queering my approach to my art, to my work, to my writing, and to my music. Um, and now, in the face of this pandemic, it's like, it's actually demanding that we all do that in some way. <laughs> we all need to queer our approaches at this point, even like to a point where we were not prepared to. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my dad even grew a mustache. So it's like just <laughs> finding different ways to be you. I mean, I think like just querying yourself in so many ways is. Yeah, I love that, Emily. I think that's great. Querying the approach. Mm hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's really important because so much of what we talked about in that class too was, you know, Jose Munoz's idea of queerness as the horizon, as a futurity, as something that's always waiting. And, um, you know, also what we talked about the daily sort of, um, mechanisms, temporal mechanisms, um, ideological mechanisms, domestic mechanisms of capitalism um, don't really have much futurity, even though they pretend to like be running towards this future. It's like you're actually just running in place. Mm -hmm. And so this has really been a time when a lot of that capitalistic um, impulse and pulse has sort of been pulled out from underneath us. And we've had to be like, okay, well, now we're all we're all set in some sort of queer disaster that we have to find our queer way out of. And, um, yeah, really cool things I hope will come from this. Um, and that's not also to trivialize the, um, extent of the horror of, of, you know, the pandemic. Um, yeah, Yeah, you can't have, um, I think, I think every profound change comes with some horror and some, you know, beauty and some combination of both. It's, it's been really interesting to see how all those concepts that we talked about as, you know, um, envisioning this, you know, queer futurity and how it's kind of impossible to envision it. And then watching that actually um, play out in the form of just just seeing how the heteronormative structures that we all have to live under are literally collapsing. Like, they are not able to be sustained. The only thing that is sustainable is a continuous queering and a continuous, like, move toward a future that we're not achieving. And and we're all experiencing it. I was like, wow, I'm really glad we covered this right now. I feel like I've got a better frame for it now. Awesome. <laughs> um, I would love just, since I wasn't in your class and also for listeners that may not be as familiar with some of these concepts querying heteronormity etc maybe we could just like walk it back and kind of give those big picture <laughs> containers and talk about how it relates to this moment we're in right now sure okay um walk it back I think the first place to start is queer uh queerness um LGBTQAI plus yes but also um oblique experiences, imaginations, bodies. Um, We can talk about it, or it has been talked about as dominant, non-dominant, but that just reinforces the hierarchies that we're trying to escape, right? So I like to think of it as queered and non-queered societies or cultures. Um, And so a queer culture is that which is oblique to what would be considered, you know, mainstream, normative, dominant culture. So the oblique sort of existences. Sorry, my cat is sick. You might hear her uh, rattling in the back. <laughs> I also have a cat that is always like in her little cave right here next to me while I'm recording podcasts, and sometimes she gets sick. So I totally. Oh, so, anyway, I didn't mean to derail us with cat talk. I'm really good. Oh no, that's it. I could talk about cats too if we wanted to. <laughs> Let's just fold that in. Well, I'll fold it in. Okay. Um, Cats and queering. Yeah, so so queerness as like um, oblique, as oblique uh, experiences, bodies, imaginations. Um, And this can be, you know, race, class, gendered, um, any sort of minoritized um, queer body. So queer, that's how I think about queer. Um, 
And then, you know, one of the theories we talked about in that class was um, from Jose Munoz's book, uh, Cruising Utopia, and uh, which is a fantastic text. Um, but in that book, uh, Munoz talks a lot about the ways in which queerness um, exists on the horizon as a future state and isn't actually a thing of the now, because the thing of the now, the thing that happens in the present is also the thing that gets fixed, right? It's mm -hmm. the condition that gets fixed. And queerness itself, being oblique, is the thing that is unfixed, right? It's the the, the puzzle, the enigma, the queerness, right? The, the twist. Uh, these are all roots, the roots of the word queer. Um, our twist, our oblique, our enigma, right? And so they're all the things that are not fixed, right? And so Munoz is, is identifying as saying that, well, queerness isn't about fixing identity. Um, and along with that, it's not about fixing queerness into fixed systems, mm -hmm. legislatively, um, uh, socially, right? Um, you know, and so it's sort of also moves close to the um, theorist and poet Fred Moten's idea, um, along with Stefano Harney, Harney's idea in their book, The Undercommons. Um, and they have a statement that says, refuse what has been refused to you, right? And this idea that um, if you allow the powers that be if you allow them to give you rights, you are just also reinforcing their power to give you the rights and then to take them away again, right? And so this sort of like legislative, um, this the way that queerness is fixed inside of, you know, the American, American legislative whatever, right? Um, that also fixes queer identity, who it is, what it is, and what it can be presently, you know, in our system. And so it still is an anti-queer model because queerness is all about transformation and twisting in the horizon. And so when you fix it, it automatically becomes unqueered, right? It automatically begins to fortify or enforce the capitalist nationalistic structures that are actually completely antithetical to queerness. That's, you know, you know uh, fortifying the oppressor, so to sort of say, right? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I'm, I'm trying to think of I have so many thoughts. I'm trying to pull them together. And then I always feel like I run up against limited vocabulary. But I like the way you're talking about this because it's almost like um, pulling back from the thing itself and looking at the bigger, you know, the structures of the things or how we approach the things. I don't feel like I'm being super articulate, but it's almost like a, almost like a meta way of looking at this. Would that make sense? Absolutely, do you think? Absolutely. Yeah. It does. yeah. I mean, I tend to think more structurally mm -hmm. um, rather than particularly in any case, um, which could be maybe a flaw in my thinking. Maybe it's not. I don't know. Maybe it's both. <laughs> Um, but I'm kind of the same way. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. If we're thinking, like, I would not call it a flaw. <laughs> <laughs> we're thinking about this structurally like that. The way I like to think of it is also in sort of the this like uh, French New Wave uh, feminist, post-structuralist feminist, um, more so post-structuralist feminist um, way of thinking about um, discourse or language, right? Which is that you know, the masculine, the sort of like, and this is all very gendered and um, pre 
uh, now, which is sort of <laughs> queering gender in all these cool ways, but just let's start there, right? Which is that, um, you know, the way that we um, erect things into being, right? The way that we use language to erect thought, the way that we use language to erect um, structures that we live inside of. Um, all of that can be sort of thought about structurally in terms of queerness as well, right? As queerness being the um, anti-erection of these systems, <laughs> okay? Um, we can keep talking about erections, but I'd rather not. So let's talk about arborescent versus the rhizome, which is another way to put it. And this comes from Deleuze and Guattari's A Thousand Plateaus, right? Um, in that this idea of the vertical, right, or the arborescent, that which all things in a system feed a singular intelligence mm -hmm. versus the rhizome, which is horizontal. Again, that word, right, which is horizontal and feeds underground, uh, not feeds underground, grows underground, speaks underground, right? A rhizome is like, you know, the largest living organism on the planet is an aspen tree, right, which is a singular organism that spans, you know, hundreds of miles and, um, is like tons in terms of weight, right? Um, and these are systems that grow underground. They're sort of unpredictable in how and where they're going to grow, but yet they can send messages across their hyper-intelligent systems, right? And so um, the difference between um, this sort of like vertical, arborescent, erected sort of structure, which we have been living in, um, which is capitalism and nationalism, which fixes things, in opposition to the rhizomic, the horizontal, mm -hmm. these massive intelligence, the way that intelligence moves multiply and simultaneously rather than singularly towards a central intelligence of a system, a central capitalistic intelligence, a central nationalistic intelligence, right? The rhizome, the vertical, I'm sorry, the horizontal, the rhizome, all of these um, concepts are queer concepts. They're things that are happening in the subterranean, right? They're things that are going to blossom on the horizon. They are futurities, mm -hmm. right? And so it's all about, uh, queerness for me is all about the unfixed, the unpredictable, the, um, the possibility, the, um, the horizontality, the futurity of things rather than the fixed, the singular intelligence, all these modes that, we're, that we've been living in. And- you know, December 21st of this year, we're moving into astrologically the age of Aquarius, which is the horizontal queer visionary age. So I think we're <laughs> going to be pushed there. We've like really resisted it for way too long. And finally, the universe is like, we'll have a pandemic, get prepared because we're going towards that. Yeah. As an Aquarius, I'm quite excited for the Aquarius. Same, Aquarius. Oh, when's your birthday? <laughs> the 7th. Um, the 15th. So. Oh, great. Very wow, are you like our second? Oh, not in a row. Baruch was also our, is our recent Aquarian. Oh, gosh, I listened to that really great. Yeah. yeah. I feel like, yeah, I, I feel like you and Baruch as um, writers and poets embody a lot of the same um, oh, approaches. Oh, that's really sweet. To, yeah, I, I I was actually I was really excited to have you both on within this short span because 
we've been we've been in like super kind of heady organizy space and it's nice to kind of break out of all the molds and you know like you're talking about breaking out of this idea of a vertical structure that we have to climb through I mean, this pandemic is showing us all that that vertical structure is an illusion, first of all, and that the horizontal structures are all that really exist, and they're kind of growing and changing constantly. And one of the concepts that I think we talked about near the end of our class that really resonated with me that I think is becoming even more um, relevant now speaking of the Aspens, um, the idea of moving past identity politics and moving past identity as, um, as like a special thing, because we are, we're evolving as, as a collective right now. And we're experiencing our connectivity as organisms with Aspens as much as with oceans. So, um, I would love to, you know, kind of hear you talk more about all your uh, all your experience in the in the horizontal and uh, post-identity <laughs> realm. Uh, I would love to be there. That is my dream. Unfortunately, these vertical structures, these nationalist structures, these racist structures, homophobic structures, heteronormative structures won't let us fucking get past identity. They think that we're the ones stuck in identity politics. <laughs> They're the ones that won't let us just move past it. Thank Literally, you. <laughs> all I wanted to vote on this election was climate issues. Yeah. But we couldn't just vote on that because no. people are suffering, because there are certain identities that are still in the grips of, um, you know, of, of systemic violence and systemic horror. And... So, yeah, I am hoping that these, this transformation into the age of Aquarius and, you know, if you don't believe in astrology, that just generally what we have been through in the past year will shift us um, away from our obsession with each other and who we are to each other, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, 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 I feel like I want to move past identity and I want to talk about other things, but it's just impossible right now, right? Every time I think that we can talk about, you know, what I feel are, are more significant sort of spiritual um, plights for humans right now um, in nature, um, it's like, how can we be talking about that when we are still, you know, murdering Black people on the street, you know, when we are still not giving people money they need because they can't work, um, you know, how can we, how can we shift, shift away from it? So, yeah, I think conceptually, again, here's this Aquarius structure obsessed um, thinking, right? I think um, conceptually, this, this idea of non-identity, um, which we got to through Monique Wittig's book, um, which I'm not going to even try to pronounce. Does anyone yeah, know I, French? I am so I have I I just show it to people. Les Guerriers. Guerriers. Yeah, I pronounce English words. And her solution in the book is like, yeah, we just be like this genderless. It's a feminist book, a post-structuralist feminist book, and she goes through all the like post-structuralist sort of arguments and this like 
like narrative way through these characters. And then by the end of the book, she's like, you know, the only solution is for us to just be a sexless society, a genderless society. Um, and that's all great, you know, to think about, but women still have, you know, certain violences that are enacted on them. Trans bodies, same, you know, and a lot of these are enacted by a different identity, men, right? And so when you still have these breakdowns, it's, you can't move past the non-identity. Um, but if we were to conceptually move past the non-identity, I think what's, I think for me, what would be really exciting about it, what would be um, the ability to really integrate my beingness with queerness, like this mm. full on sense that who I am moment to moment is always a possibility. It's not a fixed thing. It's not a thing that's located in some sort of structural capital nationalistic, you know, diagram. Um, it's something that can always be, can always become. Um, and so that, that's what would be really exciting for me about, about the non-identity one day, maybe yeah. it will give us, it will, I think it will literally bring us to deeper, unprecedented, unpredictable spiritual levels. Yeah. As a globe. I would agree. I totally agree. I'm kind of, for some reason, <laughs> this, this kind of popped into my head, uh, this idea of, um, a lot of activists will use the term dual power. I think it comes out of socialist ecology where it's like, um, you know, you have your, like, mutual aid, but then you have the sort of work you're trying to do on the legislative level or the electoral level. I almost wonder if there's a similar approach that can be made towards this sort of horizontality. I don't know if that's really a word. I just said it. Um, and kind of queerness, yeah, like, building that into the same time as we are still responding to the vertical structures that, you know, impose identity on us and force us to have to react to, you know, the oppressive systems they've overlaid on people. So. Yeah, actually, that's um, a lot of the work I do is how do we have the, the both and because it's actually uh-huh. kind of fundamentally impossible at this point in history to just like abolish these vertical structures. It just we wouldn't so much harm would be done to living that we we can't do that. And so, um, yeah, a lot of what I conceptualize is how do we activate the horizontal within the vertical, mm. right? A lot of ways I like to think about this. I'm going to take a step back to Julia Kristeva, another feminist. And one, one, one of her very sort of like, in the most like blunt way to explain this theory of hers, um, which is outdated in its genderedness, but I don't think is completely outdated conceptually. Um, right? She talks about the, um, you know, when the child is born, the, you know, the first experience they have is that of the mother, Um, And so this is like the maternal period. This is the period of like oneness. Um, There is no distinction of self as different from. This would be like a horizontality. This would be kind of like a sense of like anything can happen at any time. This is like a pure queerness, right? And then as soon as there's this recognition of the I versus the other, that's when the child moves into language, Right. And so there's this movement towards identif- identity and making structure. Right. And so a lot of what I'm theorizing is how do we not keep that binary, that like 
pre, um, and so the language period is called like the father, the language of the father, right? Mm-hmm. And then the, the pre-father is called like the, the mother, the moment, you know, um, I forget exactly her term, the maternal essentially, right? But how do, it's impossible for the child to exist purely in that maternal forever, right? Like nothing would exist if that was where we were. At the same time, there's an inherent problematics to existing only in the language of the father, right? We lose so much, right? We've literally been cut off and objected from all this other magic, right? And so the idea that I, I, I always try to meditate on is how to, how to bring them together. And um, something that has helped me think through this is Emily, Emily Dickinson's poem, um, The Brain is Wider Than the Sky. Fantastic poem. Um, but the last line of the poem, um, should I do the last stanza? Let's see if I can do the whole last stanza. Um, the brain is just the weight of God for heft it pound for pound, and they will differ if they do as syllable from sound. And so this last line as syllable from sound, you know, the, the idea that syllable is inherently within uh, and has inherently inside of it sound, right? You can't have syllable without sound. And at the same time, um, a sound means nothing until it's articulated into a syllable, right? It doesn't have like a, a meaning until it's fixed, right? And so this is a really great dynamic to look at in terms of bringing together the horizontal and the vertical, right? Because the mother um, is anterior to or within what happens after the break in the father, right? That there's something before the language that is inherently inside of us and yet we're cut off from it, right? And so the language of the father being the vertical and the language of the mother being the horizontal, the language of the father being the syllable, the language of the mother being the sound, right? How do we bring these together into a singular unifying force where we're both developing ourselves vertical and also sounding out in these really deep um, horizontal ways, right? Mm. And so I like to think of it in this kind of structure. And what I've come to Um, and this could just be my station in life, is that I really feel that a lot of this comes down to the poem, the poetic. Um, um, And I've also, you know, began to think of the poem or poetry as not a genre of literature, but as an experience, as a way of being. Um, For me, the poem isn't just like, you know, something to be studied and read and memorized and all these things, right? a poem is supposed to help us access the poetic, right? So a poem is essentially what is the poetic and what is the poetic? You know, the poetic is this sense, you know, when a big gust of wind moves through a tree and opens up through its branches and we feel that same sort of inhale inside of us. That's us communicating with the mother, with the, that, that maternal space, that deep spirit space, that sound space, that is a communication and that's the poetic, right? And yet we place this inside of language in the poem, right? We take that and we give it, we fix it inside of words. And so the poem itself is an example of the ways in which we are both always horizontal, spiritual, 
unfixed beings, and yet we articulate ourselves through language and through these more fixed vertical structures, right? The poem encapsulates both of these things, the poem and the poetic. Um, And so then the poetic also then translates, I think, to other creative um, uh, disciplines and mediums, right? Music, um, uh, a visual art, film, all these things that move us inherently and yet are also fixed inside of some sort of visual or um, rhythmic structure, right? Or linguistic structure. So art. Um, So Sarah, when you're asking like, but we need both. Yes, I would say my answer to both is inherently also what the age of Aquarius is bringing us towards art, creativity, the visionary, right? The visionary understands that things need to happen in the world. Things need to be manifested. And yet the things that we manifest come from very un, non-incarnate, vast, sounding spaces. Mm. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) It is. Yes, it is. And it's so, it's so, um, it's so tangible in many ways how we, we have to have containers for things that are uncontainable so that we can understand what they are and then take them back out of their container. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and I think, you know, as, as somebody who has attempted to work in many media as well, you know, you're also, you are a poet, a filmmaker, a dancer, you know, an artist in many capacities. And I've, I've also explored, you know, music and writing and um, performance and other capacities. And it does feel like you can't really stop trying to find different forms to put unformable things into because very all of the forms are true (laughs) in a sense (laughs) and all of the forms are inadequate and so we're constantly trying and trying and trying to keep (laughs) and this is why I've changed all my poetry classes if I could do it at the university level I would but when I teach workshops all of them now are like queer forms classes because mm-hmm. really what is art making? It's about queer forms, right? Like you have all these queer bodies and these queer experiences and these queer narratives, right? All of us have our little queer stories, right? And they don't fit into these forms that we've been given. And so the whole point I think of making art truly, um, like the poetry of making art is really about listening to what is coming through you and allowing it to perform in the form that it best wants at the moment, right? Mm. That it most wants. That's a queer form, right? Form should be queered. Form shouldn't be set. It shouldn't be like a singular thing. Um, yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. I mean, in that sense, like art essentially is expression of queerness. Yes. And, yes. and that I think is why it is so to me, such an intoxicating thing to you know devote my life and energy yes. to because it, it is it's an escape from from these vertical structures mm-hmm. within them mm-hmm. yeah even if you don't like if you don't consider yourself like a published artist or like a famous dancer or whatever I think the very act of making in the world is is that 
that collapse of the vertical and the horizontal, right? The movement out of um, what we would call, what we called in class, like the uh, dominant time, temporal structures, right? The dominant structures of time that keep us wor- as working um, for fortifying these, for fortifying the fortification of these structures, right? When we move to make art, we actually end up making things that are quite useless, Right. They don't really like help. Wild said. <laughs> yeah, they don't really Which I have help. Tattooed around my neck. Oh, do you? I don't even know. That. Around awesome. my neck, it says all art is quite useless. Yeah. <laughs> I got it to piss off the army. I love it. I and love it. Worked. It. Anyway, not to interrupt you, but oh, yes. No. Yeah. But yeah, just like the uselessness of it. It's it's like it it's it is art itself is like queer. It's anti. Um, anti-capital, anti-temporal structured, you know, it just has its own time. It has its own um, desires and its own um, uses that are not capital, national, anything really, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm just agreeing with you, Emily. Absolutely. Uh, you're, well, and you're putting it better than I did. But I also think that, yes, you're segueing like super perfectly into uh, another idea that we touched on in your class, but which has been constantly coming back up to me um, recently, which is has been the idea of queer time. Um, you know, as we're talking about temporal queerness and and hetero heterochrononormativity, my favorite word of 2019. The the idea that this pandemic has kind of forced us all to reconcile with queer time. Um, (laughs) you know, we're like, what day is it? I don't know. What time is it? I don't know. Like, where are we? What's going on? (laughs) We're all sort of thrust into even I was already kind of living it as as, you know, a sort of weirdo subversive veteran activist artist I was already like time's a construct and only thing that matters is fighting militarism. (laughs) Um, but the the idea that we are all now coming face to face with the idea that our our structures of time and what we use it for and what we value it for are getting completely turned on their head and um i don't know that was a thing that hadn't entirely hadn't straight time as opposed to queer time had not occurred to me before you introduced me to those ideas. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about them for the people. Sure, sure. Straight time and queer time. Yeah, straight time is the time, as you, you know, I think defined uh, quite well as like the time of capitalism and the time of like Western history, essentially, the time of like Western nationalistic capitalistic history. It's the time that says we get up in the morning, we work all day, we spend time with our families in the evening, and then we sleep, right? Um, Or some sort of rendition of this pattern, right? Straight time is there to keep the system moving and functioning. Without its time, it cannot be, right? Without its time, it cannot exist. Um, If its time becomes irregular, it itself becomes irregular. So straight time is the kind of time that we're trapped in um, on the day-to-day. Additionally, straight time is the time that we are trapped in in our sort of lifelines, our timelines, 
right? Straight time also says you are born, you go to elementary school, you go to secondary school, you go to college, um, you get married and you have children. And after, at, after college, you get a job and you work for the system totally. So there's these also larger time temporal constructs of straight time, right? Uh, straight time also applies, uh, you know, globally in terms of um, how we mark time by the deeds of white uh, and European colonization, right? Our, our time periods are marked by that. Um, our quote-unquote progress is marked by that. Um, and so much which is outside of that time is unknown, has been forgotten, or is recorded in histories that we don't have adequate access to. So straight time is the time that keeps us uh, that keeps the system safe and fortifies its its future production, right? Its future um, uh, sustainability, essentially, right? Queer time, on the other hand, is time that falls outside of that that doesn't have economy inside of those inside of those uh, straight time temporal structures, right? It doesn't have use. It it like fails time. It like um, it, it's a loss of, 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 um, it's what could be called like a loss of time or like, I hate losing time, right? Like when you're losing time, you're in queer time or, you know, something like that. Um, it's the time that doesn't, um, on the daily, it's the time in which we get lost in daydreams. It's the time that loses place. It's the time that doesn't adequately fulfill a larger capitalist demand, um, in terms of the timeline, queer time rejects the heteronormative movement of, you know, I'm born, I get educated, I work um, and get married and then I die, right? It falls outside of those structures. Um, and in global sense, queer time is all that time that has become ephemera or ephemeral or doesn't have a sort of fixedness in our, in our um, singular um, histories, right, in our canonized histories. It's times that are, um, the ghosts of them are still there and haunting and present. Um, they're not forgotten, but they exist in a, a world of ephemera and a world of, of like very deep, dark um, magic, I think, rather than um, this is a time to know type <laughs> of thing, <laughs> right? This is a time that you can't know. The queer times are the times that you can't know. So queerness and queer time are also are also with through Jose Munoz associated with um, ephemera or the ephemeral, right? And so that's the distinction between queer time and straight time. Now the pandemic has proven, I think, also Emily like a really great example of queer time, like the ways in which we get lost in time and also the ways in which time just kind of like um, forgets itself, as you're saying, um, you know, I see the days moving in and out, but there's really no need for me to do one thing versus another thing necessarily. I mean, we have still like we're in straight time in terms of like needing to get up and go to work or whatever it is that we do. But because we don't, leave the house as much because we're not interacting with other people as much because we don't have these sort of like other capitalistic duties that we're doing all the time. Time has become like we can reclaim it in so many ways. It's become very strange. I don't know quite how to how to 
speak towards it and maybe one of you can also add into this but for me um I've really been able to indulge in like being lost and being unfamiliar and maybe not answering emails and not feeling bad about not having shame around my temporal inclination, which I think I've also always had. Like I always want to be in not the temporal constructs that are expected of me. I've always been like that. Um, And I've been able to lean into that a lot more. Um, And I think a lot of myself has, has been freed in that. Um, And I don't know what's going to happen after this. Are we going to go back to the structures that we've been in probably for a bit? But I also think that like larger institutions are going to really discover that those time structures may not be the most profitable, honestly, for them anymore. Um, And also people have had this experience of an alternate time and they just, some people might just refuse to go back. And I think that's where a huge revolution can occur, right? We can refuse to go back to straight time, right? We can Mm -hmm. all do that. We've all been in these other ways, like from the top down, we can be like, I like this other time better. Right. And so I think that time is, is a revolution too, you know, on, on the larger structural level. Totally is. Honestly, like, sorry, Sarah, did you have something that you want to say? I was just, well, one thing I thought was interesting is on, on the time note, um, I've kind of heard, I think a similar idea presented as like Kairos and Kronos time. So I don't know if that's, Uh kind of directly related to queer time and straight time or if that's more of a I have tried to align Kairos and Kronos to straight time and queer time it doesn't align exactly because Kairos is like this overall like epic time Hmm. and Kronos is like this sort of the time of humans the time that we exist in so it's like that time versus gods versus the time versus of like people kind of um I'm trying to remember though, how was I, when I was aligning, trying to align it in my head conceptually, Kairos was, Kairos is the time. Yes, this is how I was aligning it. And this was through, I think, Sarah Ahmed's um, work in her book, Queer Phenomenology, to sort of aligned with um, her understanding of queerness as a failure to keep things in place, a failure to gather place. Mm. And I understood Kronos as being like the time of keeping things in place mm. and Kairos as being the time um, in which there is not a singularity of place, but it's like all places at once, all times at once kind of. Um so it doesn't align exactly with queered time, but it's it may itself be a queer time. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, that was quite of a side note. So um, I like I've, I like it. Yeah, because I've been thinking about those two concepts a lot. Um, so I really love that I've been hearing you kind of use words like magic and things like that. Um, I'm someone who's been very interested in the occult and seems to think it's a really valuable um, kind of tradition of thought and a way to sort of approach you know reality and what we're trying to do here and moving into you know another age hopefully Mm -hmm. um and I just would love to hear about the how you see visionary processes playing into your art into your academic work and sort of the general role of mysticism in creating the new world if we want to put it that way 
Yeah, I love that. I think first, you know, the role of mysticism in creating the new world. I think, um, I don't think we will survive without it. I think that we have to go there. Um, part of me wants to say that we will be forced to go there. Um, and I hope that that's the case. Um, but yeah, in terms of like visionary practices and in academia, you know, you know, somebody who thinks about this a lot is Sila Saderstrom, who is a personal mentor, is a personal mentor and teacher of mine um, and works a lot with divination. Uh, her book, Ideal Suggestions, Essays in Divinatory Poetics is really awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, when I was her student in the university at the University of Denver, um, she talked a lot about what was it to be a visionary in the institution. And this, you know, this is about being a visionary, a creative inside of academia, yes. But I also think it's about being a, a human inside of the American institution right now, <laughs> right? Like a human, I would like to believe, is an inherently visionary um, being, right? Um, Hannah Arendt talks about the human as having the quality of natality, right? The quality of beginning, of always being able to begin, of always being able to be um, in new action, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so I would like to think about this idea of being a visionary in the institution as being you know, is having that quality of natality inside of the larger um, American uh, institution, right? As, as us being humans, uh, you know, being humans, having the quality of visionary, uh, the visionary quality that we can always begin again, that the things that we are set into politically now, even though they may seem fixed, are, are not inherent structures. They're not the only possibility. And so um, in thinking about being a visionary inside of the institution, right, you always have to think about what creative practices will help you confront obstacles and will help you work with obstacles rather than feeling constantly beat down by obstacles, right? Because the, the institution itself is the ultimate obstacle, right? Being an American is the ultimate obstacle um, in the sense of where our money goes, where our time goes, where our minds go. Um, all of that is so controlled and we have to continue to be visionaries inside of this institution. We cannot succumb to being the institution itself, Right. We have to remember that we are visionaries inside of the institution. So that being said, bringing that towards, you know, you know this idea of like the, the myths, mystical or the um, occult even or the spiritual, the magical. Um, I think there's so many words for it, the divine. Um, I think that being a visionary inside of the system necessitates that we have a relationship with our spiritual self and that our spiritual self be given expression, freedom of expression. And I don't just mean that in terms of making art, but that our, 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 our spiritual self be given the opportunity to decide how it is used in time, how it is used in space, how it is used conceptually, 
how, how that entire being exists inside of the system because it has to exist inside of the system and yet it should have control over how, right? Mm-hmm. And so spiritually, I think we need to think a lot more about um, how are our spiritual beings inside of the system, you know? How do I use my spiritual? When do I use my spiritual being? How is it used? When is it reserved? When is it oppressed? When is it, com- when is it you know, allowed to come out? And all of those things, I think like a lot of walls, a lot of barriers need to be disseminated for that being to be fully present. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it seems like the sort of integration of the spiritual self into the the rest of the self is it seems like that's that's like the ideal conclusion of this sort of challenging of of the system to allow the spiritual self to exist at all and you know that's the idea that it's a separate thing the idea that like magic and the occult are fringe topics rather than integrated into our lives as they were for thousands of years, <laughs> or however many, you know, I'm, I'm not an anthropologist, but, you know, we didn't have these vertical structures always, and we won't have them always. The, well, uh, they were integrated. They were integrated with the horizontal, right? They were right, integrated with at the one spiritual. Point. Yeah. The domestic, point, yeah, the domestic is a vertical structure, right? What we manifest inside a domestic space is a vertical structure and yet it can be integrated with the horizontal it can be integrated Mm. with the spiritual it doesn't have to be two separate things you know any of the institutions that we live inside of um, need to be reminded that they are human structures are not not human right but humans Mm -hmm. can fall into becoming not human by believing that they are the institution themselves the structure themselves Mm. you know that really that brings brings my mind back to another of the, of the really the topics or the ideas that really, really stuck with me from your class, which was around um, collective defense <clears throat> and the ways that we approach um, the ways that we approach uh, personal injury or injury of self and uh, spiritual and physical self as as a personal thing um, rather than as um, as a manifestation of collective injury. And, you know, as we're talking about integrating horizontal and, and vertical structures, you know, the, the idea we have, for example, you know, hospitals and clinics, and we have, you know, therapists and psychiatrists, but we don't have necessarily within any of these structures, the ability to, um, to point at what are the constant injuries that we need to defend ourselves against. Um, yeah, maybe there's you can, no, yeah. there's no communal healing here. Yeah. And so a lot of the ideas that I get that I have gotten from this idea about healing and um, communal self-defense come from Virginia Grease's book, your healing is killing me. Um, also a must read, um, especially the introduction um, by Deborah Vargas. <clears throat> Um, but yes, so this, this, I, you know, healing has also itself become a vertical structure, one in which the narrative of healing is, um, 
injury, catastrophe, trauma occurs. And then there is this steep climb all the way up to the top of, you know, the turn and the, the turn in the story, right. Which would be the, the, the steep climb up to this point of healing. Right. And then there is this denouement, um, this sort of like movement out, out and away from the trauma. Right. And this is taking a canonized narrative plot structure. Right. And so in canonized narrative plot structures where you have a beginning, a middle and an end and the middle, uh, the middle chunk is all about overcoming mm -hmm. the obstacle. Right. In this case, the trauma. What we understand from that plot structure is that healing is something that one can be overcome and that needs to be overcome. Right. And that, too, the person who is responsible for overcoming is the victim themselves, right? In this way, the victim is, is not only the victim of their trauma, but is also the perpetrator of their trauma, right? If they continue to, to wallow in their trauma, they continue to, perp to perpetuate their trauma, right? And so we think about then the victim as, you know, not really having um, a sort of choice as to what to do with their trauma. There is this demand and this expectation capitally um, in terms of straight time that we overcome the trauma, right? And when I speak of trauma, there is individual trauma, but I'm, I'm speaking more like as like racial collective trauma, as, um, as queer trauma, as the trauma of the non-normative body, right? The, 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 the systemically abused body, right? And so the exceptional queers, the exceptional bodies in our society have overcome their trauma, have moved beyond it, and are able to exist um, in society through their amnesia of the trauma, right? I think a great yeah. example of this is like white women, right? Mm -hmm. Generally, white women tend to forget the oppression of women generally. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they go to their yoga class and they like meditate and they like numb the shit out of themselves through self-healing yep. in order to not feel the collective trauma of being a woman in America. Right. And that plays out because then these women cannot see the continued suffering of women of color the continued suffering yeah. of trans women, right? And so they can't, so they become blinded by their own healing, right? And this yes. is why the, this is, this is sort of like the idea behind your healing is killing me, which is like you doing your individualized healing have forgotten the collective pain. You have forgotten us all, right? And so healing has become a numbing mechanism rather than a mechanism of collective um, of a collective process. And, and the idea of collective self-defense is if we distance ourselves so far from our trauma, as is expected in these canonized narrative plot structures of healing, if we begin to distance ourselves from our trauma, creating an amnesia around our pain and our suffering, we don't ever, we aren't ever able to access the wisdom of that trauma. The, of that pain, of that suffering, right? There is wisdom inside of trauma. And the further we get from it, the further we become able to hear 
what that trauma is really um, offering us, right? And we continue to just sort of linger whenever we go back and revisit that trauma, we linger in this space of victimization. Yes, it is a space of victimization, but inside that victimization, there is power. That is where there is some black magic there. Mm-hmm. There is language there. There is poetry there. There is creation there that is not allowed into the system, right? Mm-hmm. Because they don't want it to. If we carry that wisdom with us, we wouldn't let men manipulate the system in the way we do, right? Right, right. Yeah. We wouldn't let the structures continue to stand in the way they, w- they are. They would be inherently knocked down because we would say, no, I have the wisdom of this pain from before. And as a collective, we are going to defend ourselves against it from the future. Right. And so not being able to have that defense by, you know, by, by, by telling people to self-heal and overcome, they are cutting themselves off from that wisdom and cutting all of us off from the ability to collectively defend against continued systemic violence. Yeah, it's so, um, I think just that idea is, it's one of the most, more powerful ones that I've encountered in my life. I would say like that, that book, I, I keep it out on my, my table because it, um, it does remind me, especially as someone as someone who is recovering from trauma, from various experiences. It's important to remember that the trauma didn't happen in a vacuum, and that the trauma is not a thing to be run from. It's a thing to be integrated, just like every other life experience. And part of integrating it is identifying how it's harming and where the harm is coming from and finding the ways that we um, share pain and trauma with other people. And so we don't have to be isolated in it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. An essay I'm looking, I'm working on now writing is um, all about um, like uh, healing as, and I'm, I'm not suggesting here that, that victims, Um, of racialized and or other traumas don't heal, right? What I am suggesting is that the expected capital nationalistic mechanism of healing is extremely problematic and creates amnesia, but we do need healing. So then the question is, well, what kind of healing is there for queered bodies, right? And for me, the answer again comes back to the poem, comes back to... um, the idea that healing is not about amnesia, but it's about a sensuality. It's about having a sensual relationship with the trauma, a conversation with it, about not losing it to time, but allowing the loss of that trauma to be a present absence in your life, right? And saying, yes, this exists for me. This is whatever it is for you. And to feel that and to know that and to listen to it. Um, and I think through the poem, um, I think through the poetic, we, we, are, we become aware of that wisdom, right? Through the poetic, again, like when you see, you know, something happen in front of you, um, when you see that tree to open, you know, maybe you see or you feel something of your own wisdom inside of that. And so attending to that 
right? And that will help you attend to your trauma. And it's not about like re-traumatizing or going back into the pain. It's about saying, no, that happened. I'm not going to forget about it. I'm not going to overcome it. I'm going to live with it because it lives with me. Mm-hmm. And to pretend it doesn't, is just a lie. And also you, you don't get the wisdom of it. Yeah. Oh, it's so important. And I, I'm, I, I feel like, and I'm, I'm not going to like, um, I don't want to go on and on, but I feel like learning about and thinking about these ideas, especially, you know, last year when I was going through an incredibly painful and shocking divorce was, um, a very, like, it's been crucial to be able to integrate these concepts for me as a, as a human going through lots of like destabilizing trauma to be able to say, okay, now what am I, what art is going to come out of this? Like, how am I going to express this in non toxic ways or in ways that are going to benefit other people as well, you know, ideally, um, you know, (laughs) that's the, and that is the larger concept of collective self-defense is like, if you don't anchor the wisdom, and I take that quote directly from Sila Saderstrom's book, Anchoring the Wisdom, if you don't anchor the wisdom of your trauma, how do you expect to help others? How do you expect that wisdom to get out and reach out, right? It's not about just you here, right? This is about a collective self-defense. This also has been a really (laughs) meaty conversation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If there's any more uh, questions or anything, I can. I mean, there are so many rabbit holes we could jump down. <laughs> yeah, um, <I'm> really, like, <laughs> we could talk about so much stuff. I'm trying to think if there was anything that I like deeply wanted to jump into before we, but I, I feel like we've kind of touched on all of the things that I was hoping that we would, but if there's anything else that you feel like has come up in the course of the conversation that you would like to, um, you know, bring up and that, that would be totally welcome. I, hmm, no, I don't, I don't think so. I have really enjoyed this conversation. Um, yeah. It's so exciting to be talking about these things with you all, um, with other people who are excited about the age of Aquarius. <laughs> yes. And uh, <laughs> all these revolutions, these larger structural revolutions. Mm-hmm. There are people, I think, who can see the revolution on the ground if the body with the bodies that are there and organize them and then there are other people who I think see the revolution in these larger structural ways and I identify more with with that category of people um I have a hard time translating that sometimes into what needs to happen um but I hope if somebody is listening and they are that person that knows what needs to happen, that they can take these larger ideas and translate them um, into the bodies that are doing the organizing and the work on the street, um, because that's really, you know, the communal, um, the communal exchange um, and work. Yes. Mm. I would also like to hear from that person if they're there. Same. <laughs> Call <laughs> in. Kind of happening. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I did, there are, we know those people and they are working. I, and I've actually, I mean, I would say there's places like Seattle and Portland have been exemplifying what happens when mutual aid becomes, um, becomes a, a real present 
um, structure that exists within a, a culture or within a, a community. Uh, the, a lot of the, you know, protesters who's, who were initially focused on just defending against, um, overt police brutality have shifted a lot of their energy into, um, confronting the systemic injuries like homelessness and, um, foodlessness and poverty in general and, you know, um, work discrimination and housing discrimination and all of these things are, you know, I've been seeing people step in and create, you know, they're not calling it collective defense, but creating structures that are horizontal and are enacting those ideals. So they're not on a huge scale right now, but they are happening. So, um, and there are a lot of people out there doing it and I want to talk to all of them too. <laughs> They're creeping in. I mean, that's that's how it has to happen. I think the best image ever of this comes from Lisa Robertson's book, um, Occasional Works and Seven Walks from the Office of Soft Architecture, in which she describes um, this kind of like radical activism as a weed growing in the concrete and the weed gets stronger and stronger and starts to shatter the concrete, right? So these like, you know, the capitalistic systems that are being fortified can so easily be shattered just by these rhizomic growths happening mm. inside of their cracks and just starting to crumble it from the inside out, right? Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Do that work. Uh, um, well, that's a wonderful, hopeful. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think note. of perfect. Oh little bow <laughs> yeah um where can people find you or where would you like to be found <laughs> oh um if you would like to be found <laughs> Seattle but on the world wide web I'm just at serenachopra.com um I don't know I have an Instagram I think it's Serena Rose Chopra um that's yeah serenachopra.com Great. We'll put up links um to direct people to your films and your books and your everything that you do because I want to share it with the world I think the ideas that you know I've talked about with you and listened to you talk about have been I think some of the most important ones I've I've encountered in my life so yeah yeah thank you I wrote down like five books and I'm looking forward to going back oh, through yes. editing and writing down all these book titles so <laughs> yeah for sure for yeah sure. that's awesome yeah. Awesome. It's nice to meet another structurally thinking Aquarius. Too. Yes. <laughs> we exist for a reason. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> it's real friend. lonely. <laughs> it's like. We're going to need you. Yeah. We're a good counterbalance. But yeah. Sometimes I'm like, oh, no one else is up here with me. <laughs> it's just me. Okay. So it's nice to know there's others. <laughs> so, yes. Seduction after the Great Plains. Across the stage, a birth chart of weightless deviations, each body filling itself on a cannon of lusting. Constellate me, untense me, give me into the last resort sinew, bone at the cool glory of my sexy clarity. Stop motion as a strobe-lit prairie. Watch me, watch me in the mirrors. Lightning, 
Water is a furious conjunction. I arch sternum and spread leg, no better than to keep dearly in the empty pockets of pussy commodity. I take copper under my tongue, wade the pool, channel the night shift through an electric campus of roving mothers. Meaning, under the stench of men and cigarettes, I am foul-mouthed blood, a whole world laid with shaved pearl. So, when I dance, you read what you can see, my eyes turned beneath heaving light-caught rhinestones on lashes, is a spin, a swerve, a veil. I am not here with you or for me. Like jaw-clenched knots in my throat, I cut this circulation of barter and tend. I bring tender. I do better. I lick the wound and enter, letting the tongue split and wander there. It's really nice to meet another um, systematic thinking Aquarius because it's, it's such a different way to view the world, especially a world that's conforming to these ideas of time and capitalism that are very vertical, as she said, to kind of not naturally exist in that space and have to figure out how to navigate it is always an interesting challenge for me. And I do it. I do a decent job at it. But it's just really refreshing to meet somebody that you're like, oh, yay, OK, I'm not like the only one who's floating up here in Aquarius land. <laughs> like, how do we look at yeah. how we connect all these things and look at the things themselves, not just like, how are we going to change policy, but like, how are we looking at how we even think about policy in the first place? Exactly. That was why I wanted to have her as a guest, because I feel like the way that she has of zooming out and questioning the conf like the the words we even use to talk about the structures has it has been really helpful to me in sort of unfucking my head um, from like this toxicity that we're conditioned with that makes us feel like we're constantly not enough and we constantly need to be striving harder and harder and achieving 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 and sometimes all you need is the words to be like. So that's called straight time. <laughs> well, I think until yeah. you name something, it almost doesn't seem real, at least in this plane, you know, on this physical plane. So it's definitely, there's a lot of value in, you know, I think like, as we said with the Matt interview, you can get too hung up on the specifics of language, but being able to question the container and name the container, especially the containers we don't see and point out that they are actually a container and not a God-given mm -hmm manifestation of this reality that we can't break out of like it is literally just a container and we can redefine it like that I think is super valuable and not something that trickles down to activist spaces enough but I think it I think it is starting to but yeah I think it's it's been a leap for people and understandably if your whole life is reacting to how the vertical container is shitting on you you're probably not gonna yeah. have much time to think about what does time actually mean and and how does time relate to the system that we're all kind of stuck in um, and how can we conceptualize mm -hmm. time differently? But there's a lot of value to thinking that way. So I appreciated Serena's perspective a lot. Me too. Time is such a tricky beast. And I feel like, you know, we all exist on a 24-hour news cycle, for example. And it's so interesting to pay attention to what topics we're thinking about every day. And we have these, like, memory things that 
pop up in social media now and like Facebook and Instagram and all the stuff and remind us like what we were talking about last year. And sometimes it's stuff that I don't think I talked about that much after that or, you know, and it's, it just shows how much every single thing we think about is put into this container, the straight time container that we're, we're forced to, to live under until we decide not to. Yeah. It was really interesting. I hadn't thought about social media as such a really concrete, even though it's not a concrete thing. It is, though, a really good example of how um, straight time is solidified and just even how we relate to how we speak to each other and communicate with each other and communicate ideas and information. We are even more now than our parents' generation and their parents' generation. We're beholden to the 24-hour news cycle um, in many ways if we want to be engaged with our society and our political structures. They've almost gotten outside of our control in their aggressive uh, heterochrononormativity. <laughs> Just everything can be mapped to a timestamp now. Everything has to be documented. You know, it's, it's interesting to think about what spaces that aren't like that might look like. It's just the idea of questioning all of the containers and what's inside them and then taking a step back and questioning those questions is <laughs> the essence, right, of what we're what we're trying to like make space to do. Yeah. And I think you know, she talked a lot about sort of magic and spirituality too and I was really happy to hear, you know, someone in academia use the word magic cuz I feel like it's so not taken seriously as a word and you know there is the court kind of the fun of that when you say you're interested in magic people think you're talking about like job from arrested development or something but (laughs) 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 this is an illusion tricks are what whores do for money so like the idea of sort of you know the visionary i think is a really important tool to help you navigate those spaces of Mm-hmm. if we want to call it queerness or whatever words we want to use to kind of step back and look at things from a big systematic level, you need spirit there to help you do that. And if words like spirit and God make you uncomfortable, just call it energy. I don't know. Call it whatever you want. Yeah. Like, yeah. I feel like I have, I have a hard time with the idea of the Judeo Christian God who's like an authoritarian and knows everything and punishes you. Um, and exists as a man in the sky, um, you know, or whatever. I, I have an issue with that, but I, I definitely fully embrace the idea of an uncontained, unknowable um, thing that you can only really experience as um, like a, the, a greater life energy that's like, I, like I, I think of it as, I, and I don't think it's esoteric at all to note that we are all connected through energy because energy is a visible thing. Like we can track energy in waves. When we look at the visual representation of energy, like in sound waves, for example, it looks a whole lot like a mountain range to me. Energy is what we're all made of and what everything around us is made of. And I don't see like a separation there that would make it have to be this like woo-woo situation. Yeah, it's interesting. Just the culture that we live in has made that something that seems woo instead of something that's intrinsic to being human. 
And I feel like it mm-hmm. is intrinsic to being a human. And I feel like half of this battle, if not more of it, is trying to remember, you know, what it means to be a fully realized human being. And a large part of that is having a relationship with the divine or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And with like all of the aspects of the self, which are not necessarily, um, you know, straight time oriented, like all of ourselves exist all the time. Our inner child still exists in us as, as adults. So, you know, we can't look at our lives as being linear and, you know, in that way we can look at them as being, um, you know, like a a constant repetition of patterns and like a layering of all the different selves that we have ever been and ever will be. Yeah, totally. It's like Photoshop layers. Yeah, so neat. What the Folk is co-hosted, edited, and produced by Sarah Baranowskis and Emily Yates. This episode's guest has been Dr. Serena Chopra, featuring her poem, Seduction After the Great Plains. Music has been The Only Point and Love Yourself by Emily Yates. Thanks for listening, and we hope you will join us next time and share us with all your friends and tell us how much you love us because we love you. Thank you, and goodbye. The only point of being is to be Even what you be